Welcome to American Student Radio. I'm your host, Sophia Salaby. We're joined by IU alum and NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. And today we're having a conversation about race in the media, the state of TV, and where the media stands just two days before the election. Thanks for listening. From Bloom... From... Uh, again, live... live what is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. Welcome back. Uh, like I said, this, I'm your host this week, Sophia Salby. Our, um, before I introduce our guest, I wanted to let you know who else is in the studio today. Um, our very great EP, Taylor Haggerty, is on boards today. And then you also will probably be hearing from two of our ASR producers, Sheila Ragavangerin and Angelo Bautista. So if you hear them, that's who they are. <laughs> um, so our guest today is Eric Deggins. He's a 1990 graduate of IU. He's worked at the Tampa Bay Times as their TV and media critic for almost 20 years and joined NPR as their first full-time TV critic in 2013. His book, Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation, was published in 2012. And he's also one of this year's recipients of the Distinguished Alumni Award in Journalism at IU. So congratulations. Uh, we're happy to have you on the show. Welcome Thank back to Bloomington. You. You're the beginning of your thing kind of fooled me. I thought somebody was messing up. <laughs> no. It turns out that was the beginning of the show. So. No, that's how we, we... I think I still need another cup of coffee. That's what it is. Yeah. Was was How was the award ceremony last night? Uh, it was wonderful. Um, I had not really seen the sort of uh, revamped and refurbished uh, Franklin Hall which houses the media school, which uh, has combined, you know, when I went here in 1990, the schools of telecommunications and journalism and uh, public relations and marketing were all separate. And so this was the first chance I had to sort of see them all in one building in a brand spanking new place with a TV studio, which is really nice, and a radio studio, which is really nice. And, you know, I, I, I keep trying to stop myself from doing that thing that alumni do where you're just like, when I was here, <laughs> we didn't have food carts that worked at every dorm and we didn't, you know. So, But seriously, man, there's so, you know, there's so much more uh, wonderful technology and resources that the journalism and public relations and telecommunications students have now that we didn't have when I was here. So it's really cool to see that. Yeah, they've, they've got that huge TV, too. <laughs> I know. I know. The huge TV, which uh, as they were um, – there was a reception the day before because we had a career day where we talked to students about what they might want to do once they get out of here. And, uh, you know, the, the journalism um, – or the dean of the media school is giving a presentation, and above his head is Donald Trump uh, sort of <laughs> gesticulating. And it was, <laughs> it was a very bizarre juxtaposition of images. Uh, he was talking about press freedom. And here's a guy who regularly criticizes the press and almost encourages his followers to attack them. And so it was uh, <laughs> it was a surreal moment, but it kind of summed up uh, the challenges I think that students are facing, journalism students are facing now. You know, the media world is changing right before their eyes. Journalism is changing right before their eyes. And even those of us who've been in the business a while don't really know what news coverage is going to be like in January and February and March. And what is it going to be like to cover the presidency um, you know, no matter who wins, um, journalism has been changed forever by this campaign, and we still don't really know uh, how much. 
So, um, kind of what has like watching this? I listened to a profile you did with our NPR member station WFIU um, in January, mm-hmm. and one of the topics you talked about was um, Donald Trump's appearance on SNL. Um, right. Obviously, we're two days from the election. Right. How is how have things changed since January? Um, well, you know, I think a lot of people didn't take Donald Trump seriously as a candidate back then. And I think people in media were able to rationalize uh, the way he was being covered. Um, you know, at the time, his competitors in the um, for the nomination, for the GOP nomination, were complaining that the media was focused too much on Donald Trump because he was saying outrageous things and he would draw ratings. Uh, and uh, I remember writing about um, a study that came out in December that showed, well, it was in January, but it, it showed the, the first six months of coverage from when he announced in July to the end of the year, and he got uh, more than twice as much coverage as the next most covered candidate in the Republican race. He got something like 234 minutes of coverage on the evening news cast of the top three broadcasters, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And the next person, I think, got 54, and that was George, or that was Jeb Bush. So, um, you know, when you get that much free publicity, it can't help but make you a leading candidate. And, and uh, you know, so, so, you know, flash forward to now, and we're at a point where traditional media is trying to um, report incisively on his business dealings and his... Um, his university, you know, this, uh, you know, for-profit school that he ran for a while, um, and uh, his charities uh, or his lack of charitable giving, you know, um, given what's, what's come out, his, the way he treats women, his history with women, whether or not he's cheated on his wife, his third wife, his current wife, um, and whether or not he's, um, you know, groped women while he was married, all of these questions, um, but it's it's in an environment where they've already given him so much coverage that it is hard to uh, it's hard to make a dent. So, um, you know, in these final moments, I mean, you know, we just had last night a rally where someone who had a sign that said Republicans against Trump was attacked in the middle of the crowd. Someone yelled "gun." The Secret Service whisked Trump off the stage. And his followers were saying it was an assassination attempt, even though every news outlet that was there reported that it was a protester who got attacked by the crowd and was whisked away by the police for his own safety. Uh, And so when we're at a point where something like that can happen, it's on live television. There's uh, dozens of news outlets reporting what actually happened, and there's still a huge segment of the population that believes something else happened because the candidate told said... Uh, an, an, uh, an untruth. You know, where are we and how do journalists, you know, operate? Um, I think journalists for a long time have taken, and particularly media executives, I want to say the people who run places like CNN and Fox News, have taken for granted the idea that there's this agreement between the audience and the journalist. The journalist does their best to collect uh, information that is factually accurate to the best of their knowledge. And the audience trusts that information when it's presented to them. And that is a a compact that we've taken for granted because it's existed in this country for over 100 years. And now we've reached a point where that, for a lot of people, that doesn't exist anymore. And you can go out and you can do your best to report a story and you can do your best to bring facts. And if it doesn't comport with what they want to believe, 
then they don't believe that it's true. Even when you even when you have it on videotape, they don't believe it's true. So 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 you know I, this is going to be a tremendous challenge for students of journalism um, who may enter the workforce a year from now or five years from now. You know how do you operate in a world where there's a significant portion of people who will never believe what you tell them if it is contrary to what they want to believe? Right, and I think one of the topics you kind of talk about in your book, um, which I want to touch on how things have changed because this was made, uh, published in 2012. It's 2016 now, com- right. almost a completely different landscape, but in a way sometimes not. But you kind of talk about how there's an echo chamber where people are increasingly able to go to the sor- go to the sources, go to the sites where their own views and opinions are being echoed, right. and they don't have to go out and seek um, maybe diverse sources. They can just hear maybe what they want to hear. What right. Has that gotten worse in these past four years since the book was published? Or? Yeah, I think the answer to that question is pretty obvious. But uh, what, what's been interesting is, uh, you know, um, Pew, uh, the, the Pew Center has done a lot of polling around this. And what they found is that um, people of different political um, persuasions consume news in a different way. So um, what they called sort of consistent conservatives, um, they find one news source that they trust – and they base a lot of their news consumption around that news source, and then they may consume a few ancillary platforms that um, are often connected to that news source. And 47% of them trust Fox News, but they don't trust most uh, mainstream news outlets. You know, Pew, I think, gave them a list that was like 32 mainstream news outlets, and they distrusted most of them. Um, uh, People who are mainstream news consumers and or consistent um, Democrats or consistent liberals, um, they consume um, a wider variety of, and trust a wider variety of news sources. And there may be three or four news sources that they go to uh, consistently for news coverage. Um, and, I, and I think that's, there's a difference. That speaks to the difference in how um, people of different political ideologies sort of receive and communicate uh, ideas. And and so uh, conservatives want to find one source that they trust, and then they um, invest a lot of belief in that tr- in that news source. And that news source has turned out to be news sources that um, convince them that the way they see the world is the way the world is. Um, you know, um, more mainstream news consumers and more consistent liberal consumers um, seek a range of news outlets because they want to believe that what they're being told is actual reality. Now, that just means that the it, – it also means that news outlets that are ideologically skewed towards liberals have to be a little more sophisticated in how they do what they do, and they have to have more news content in the, the stuff that they're presenting. So when you go, go on the Huffington Post, you will see out um, stories that are uh, skewed towards the liberal and democratic point of view, but they have to have more news content in them because the people who consume that uh, demand that. And, uh, you know, uh, but on the conservative side, you'll see a Fox News anchor um, claim that uh, Hillary Clinton is is on the verge of being indicted. And then he walks it back and says, I was wrong to say to say it that strongly. But all the opinion um, pundits on Fox News keep saying it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so and so you you have this sort of lie being echoed uh, throughout a, a conservative news chamber because one news outlet said it once 
um, and then admitted it, um, you know, right away that they were jumping the gun and they didn't really have the evidence to back up that statement. It's too late. They said it once, and now it's inside that echo chamber, and there's a bunch of people who believe that it's true, even though it's not. And so we've reached this point now um, where it's hard to find news, news outlets that everyone will accept as at least making a good faith ec- effort to report the truth. And, and that's the problem. And, and, and some of it has been deliberate. You know, Fox News and some news outlets have particularly invested energy in convincing people that they can't trust other news outlets. But some of that has also been the news outlet's fault because they've done things um, that have betrayed the viewer. Um, they've manipulated things, and um, they've made mistakes that were avoidable. Uh, and, and they've brokered away uh, part of their credibility in the process. So when you, when you go to some of these um, people who consume these other news outlets and you say, well, you should, really should trust mainstream news outlets, they can point to the Rolling Stone UVA rape story. They can point to the way CNN hired Corey, Corey Lewandowski from the Trump campaign and the way um, Donna Brazile, you know, uh, a Democratic um, party uh, official was able to get questions and feed them to the Clinton campaign in advance. They can point to actual things that uh, have damaged the credibility of press outlets, and we don't have much of a defense. So we need, we need to clean up our own house in, in, in a way uh, so that we can win back the trust of you know, these people that we've lost. Mm-hmm. Sheila, did you have a question? Yeah. Um, so I'm interested in what you think about uh, the three presidential debates this year mm-hmm. and how the moderators of those debates uh, and the questions that they asked affect the public's takeaway and opinion on the candidates and their performances. Um, well, you know, the moderators are in a tough position because each of the candidates – well, par- I think part of the problem is that moderators um, – a lot of the moderators are TV news personalities, and TV news personalities, their brand is wrapped up in the audience, b- both believing them and on some level liking them. So uh, I would love to see uh, a debate moderated by a public figure who does not care whether or not at the end of that presentation they are liked by the audience or not, that they're willing uh, to, um, to take control of the discussion in a way that would make them look bad, that would make them look like a jerk. Now, Chris Wallace is the closest figure to that, and I think that's why um, that's one reason why he was the most successful as a moderator. He's not afraid of looking like a jerk and interrupting people and asking very pointed questions that some people might think are insulting uh, because he's, he's, uh, he's focused on um, you know, trying to get uh, people to account for the hypocrisies that may be in their past, and he's, trying to, he's focused on, on uh, trying to put people on the spot and make them um, you know, accountable for some of the things that they've done that may... Um, that voters may be concerned about, that the audience may be concerned about, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think um, Elaine Keanu, I, I, I know her a little bit because she was an, a, a local TV news reporter in uh, the Tampa Bay, Florida area, where I worked as uh, covering local news for a long time. So um, she's a great reporter and an up-and-coming personality. I'm not quite sure she was experienced enough or ready uh, for such a major um, task to try and moderate a vice presidential debate where these two candidates were determined to talk over her. Um, Lester Holt is also a, a great journalist, but he's also a very polite guy. And I think he also let them get away with too much. And, you know, these candidates come in and they have game plans 
and it's up to the moderator to disrupt those game plans because the point is to really find out, get these people to reveal themselves. And if they're following a, a playbook, um, they're not really revealing themselves. They're just being strategic about tr- trying to win the argument. And so the, the key for a good moderator is to make sure that issues of importance get explored, make sure the candidates are off of their game plan enough that they reveal themselves and keep control of the conversation enough that it doesn't degenerate into an argument that doesn't reveal anything to the people who are watching it. And I feel that some of these TV personalities, on top of all of that, want to come out of the presentation being liked and admired by the audience. And, and that doesn't, those two, all of that is too difficult. If you go into it with the idea that you want to make these people reveal themselves, um, then it's a much simpler game plan for the moderator, uh, and you wind up, I think, with, with uh, more important moments. Um, Anderson Cooper, is, uh, to me, seems like somebody who's been very deft about that. Um, I like Martha Raddatz, too. They, they co-moderated a debate, but, but Martha has a tendency. She knows the facts, and so when, when a candidate says something that's not true, she, she winds up lecturing them about what the actual facts are, and that's not, um, that's not a great moment. Uh, it's more about what the it's more about the candidate and less about them. Um, so so I, I feel like the, the the debates were revelatory in unintended ways, but we didn't really get to a moderator who could handle these two candidates until we got to Chris Wallace, and we needed two more debates with somebody like Chris Wallace. Um, and 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 part of that too is. Um, when I was here in, in, at IU, I took a uh, journalism ethics class, and I was introduced to Noam Chomsky, who's this really great political thinker and linguist who wrote a book called Manufacturing Consent. And in that book, he talked about the different ways in which media um, is controlled uh, by the elites. That, that was his contention. But one of the ways in which the media is controlled by elites, he contended, was this idea of flack, meaning that um, if... Uh, you can criticize um, uh, something repeatedly that um, a media outlet does. They may not change the report that you criticize, but they get so defensive at um, after repeated criticisms that maybe the third or fourth time they go to report on that issue, they pull their punches a little bit or they act a little differently. Um, it's been called more recently work in the refs, where you complain enough uh, about bad calls and then the next time the ref is going to make a call, he's going to make a call uh, that's more likely to go in your direction just because they've been intimidated a bit by all your complaining. And I, and I do feel like conservatives in this country have criticized mainstream media so much um, that mainstream media figures don't feel as free as somebody like Chris Wallace, who was on Fox News, who is probably not going to get criticized by conservatives in the same way that a um, Lester Holt will be. Um, before the first debate, Donald Trump said Lester Holt was a Democrat, was a registered Democrat. He had no idea what he was talking about. It turns out Lester Holt is a registered Republican. Um, <clears throat> but he assumed he was a Democrat, I bet, because he was uh, a black man who worked in mainstream media. Um, and so already Lester Holt is a little bit in a box because Donald Trump's supporters and Fox News viewers are going to be very skeptical of how he treats Donald Trump. Now, Chris Wallace doesn't have that problem. And, you know, Democrats may be waiting to see how he uh, treats Hillary Clinton. 
uh, but they're not as adept and not as aggressive in using that flak technique to intimidate journalists. So uh, I feel like Chris Wallace had a freer hand for that reason. Um, and also, when you got to that debate, um, Donald Trump knew that he had to look more controlled. So for the first half of the debate, he didn't interrupt or talk over Hillary Clinton as much as he did in the first two debates because he's, he's been told repeatedly about how bad that looks. And, uh, and so for the first half of the debate, Chris Wallace had two candidates who were being respectful of the rules, and he didn't have to step in and, and corral the debate as much as previous moderators had to do. So anyway. One thing I kind of wanted to get your perspective on is um, that relates to this idea that conservatives or conservative media host personalities, they kind of have a little bit more free reign, especially in like online media. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Tommy Lauren from The Blaze. She put out these two yeah. rants earlier yeah. this year, yeah. one about Beyonce's Super Bowl <coughs> right. performance, one about Jesse Williams' BET speech. Sure. And I feel like at the same time, it's she has this freedom to say all these things that are a lot of times not true. But also when that when those conservative media um, talks seep into the mainstream, um, there's all this outrage, which further maybe divides us where we're like, oh, well, we are definitely different people, conservatives and liberals. So I guess how does that – why is she more free to say these things? And then how does that divide us further? Well, again, like I had described, um, you know, consistent liberals consume information in a different way. So if a, a liberal uh, um, news person were to go on the air and rant in a way where they told a bunch of lies about conservatives um, – it's more likely that that audience would also consume other media outlets that would tell them that what that person was saying was a lie. And, um, and those kind of lies don't um, engender loyalty from the, from the consistent liberal audience. Uh, but but if, if a conservative commentator goes on the air and reflects back what the audience expects to hear about Beyonce or expects to hear about a social situation or expects to hear about Hillary Clinton, um, they are believed whether or not what they are being told is true. And, and, and that's the big divide now, is that there's one audience that is a little, that wants, a, that really wants a sense that what they're hearing is rooted in truth, and there's another audience that has, sl- that has slowly rejected that notion. They don't need to believe that it's um, rooted in truth in the same way. Once they hear it from a source that they trust, then to them it's true. And, and it's, you know, um, uh, Stephen Colbert talked about truthiness, um, this idea that you believe something is true because you feel in your bones that it's true, not because you've gone out and found any data to support it. And I, and I also feel like social media kind of feeds into this because um, if you look at Facebook in particular, um, Facebook is a huge source of page views and attention for a lot of major media, major media outlets, including NPR. But what Facebook also does is that, um, you know, a story uh, from NPR or the Washington Post about an issue gets the equal size and placement as a story from OccupyDemocrats.com or The Blaze um, or, you know, any number of media outlets that either do fake news or do um, ideologically skewed news. And, and so it makes it, um, for the consumer, it equalizes those messages. And so um, they'll see something on Facebook, 
And unless you have enough sense to look and see, well, what, where did this link come from? And then follow that link and look at where it came from and explore that source and find out, um, is it a satirical news website? Is it um, a, a ideologically skewed website? Is it a white supremacist website? Is it a liberal skewed website? You know, sometimes it's hard to figure that stuff out. And and then only and then only then can you judge the veracity of the story, the original story. And so nobody does that. Half the time, people don't click on the links; they just look at the headline and they assume they know the story. So um, that puts us in a situation where a lot of this fake news and this ideologically skewed news gets elevated. And even people who don't mean to pass along fake news, like one of the problems in Facebook is that its algorithm uh, for filling your news feed often gets fooled by fake news stories. And then those fake news stories get reported on by columnists or get reported on by pundits or get reported on by journalists. And then all of a sudden, they've been transformed into something that has the imprimatur of of being real news until they get debunked. And Sean Hannity uh, passed along a fake story um, that he had to retract. Um, and, and that's not the first time something like that has happened to a more mainstream news voice, even if it's a pundit. So I feel like we have this sort of increasingly out-of-control news system um, where the traditional notions of what a pundit's responsibility is and what a journalist's responsibility is and what a news outlet's responsibility is has gotten so blurred and fuzzy that it's hard to trust uh, what comes out of it. And when things are so confusing, it's just easier for people to say, I I reject it all, or I reject all the stuff that doesn't feel right. You know, if I see a story that feels right, I will invest in that. And if I see a story that doesn't feel right, then I will reject it. But that is a simplistic way of looking at things, and it often leads to mistaken conclusions on both sides of that ledger. So, Um, I have one more question before we take a short break. Um, But... Your book was written um, in 2012. Kind of the backdrop of it are these two things, um, Obama's reelection campaign and also the death of Trayvon Martin. Today, it's 2016, four years later. We're kind of in a post-Ferguson world. Over the summer, we saw the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. Um, Has the way we talked about race in the media, has that changed or has it not changed? Well, it's weird. You know, you, you see a move forward and then you see a backlash to that move forward. So I think last year we saw a lot of discussion about the impact of institutional prejudice and racism in policing uh, communities of color. And we really saw uh, a discussion um, about Black Lives Matter, about the idea that um, there may be a lot of law enforcement people who are completely nice people and would never directly express prejudice. But in the moment when they have to make a decision about whether they're going to use lethal force or not against someone, um, are they making the decision to use lethal force more often when they're dealing with people of color? And, 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 you know, I think especially last year we were really having that discussion in earnest and there were a lot of examples that people could look at uh, to say that there was a systemic problem and that the way in which police officers are being trained and the way in which um, uh, investigations are being handled after the fact and the decision to prosecute and even the prosecutions of people involved in these questionable shootings all needed to be explored and questioned. Um, but I think the backlash to that has also helped fuel um, you know, the, the, the Trump movement. Um, this sense that um, 
you know, institutions in America are bending over backwards too much uh, to to um, to uh, accede to what people of color are complaining about, and that um, you know these traditional notions of law and order are somehow being obliterated because people of color are asking uh, law enforcement to take a hard look at how they're making decisions about when they're going to use lethal force or when they're going to detain somebody or, um, you know, uh, when does somebody deserve, you know, the full attention of a squad of police officers and when are they just minding their own business. Um, and, and, and so whenever you see some progress, you also see some backlash. And so, um, you know, a lot of people smarter than me have made the argument that an element of the rise of Trump is the reaction to that discussion and people feeling as if the things that they think they could trust, including police officers in the criminal justice system, are under attack uh, by people of color and, um, you know, that an Obama administration is somehow influ- influencing the entire government to bend over backwards. So, unfortunately, we're not having an honest discussion about that. What we're talking about instead um, is... Um, you know, you know, uh, email, you know, personal email servers, and um, you know, did somebody, uh, you know, was was somebody, you know, making uh, sexual advances towards people outside their marriage, or did they sexually assault women, or um, you know, was there a pay-to-play scheme at the, um, you know, the Clinton Foundation? Um, it's, it's, it, we're not. We, we have the symptoms of uh, a backlash in front of us, and instead of talking about what's creating that backlash and talking about what's making people feel the way they feel, we instead are talking about all these other issues that, are, that feel like they're ancillary. And um, the candidates don't want to focus on the real questions because that's not necessarily how you win an election. And unfortunately, the news media is so wrapped up in its... Uh, quest for ratings and relevance um, that that the news media isn't doing a really great job at re- focusing us on those questions either. And, um, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate. I mean, you know, people have pointed out, you know, we had three presidential debates and a vice presidential debate. We didn't have a substantive discussion about climate change. Um, we didn't have much of a discussion about um, the opioid epidemic and problems with um, substance abuse, in particular, um, you know, problems with, uh, you know, Oxycontin and heroin and, and meth. And, but, the, you know, this stuff is ravaging these communities that um, have produced these voters who are completely uh, fed up with the fact that their institutions have failed them. And they're completely valid and right and feeling that way, but our presidential race is not discussing these issues. I mean, the people in Flint, Michigan still don't have clean water. Um, and, and, and how much did we really talk about that in any of these presidential debates or any of these big forums? It was all about these issues that either the media thought would draw big public attention or that one candidate or the other thought would harm their opponent. And, and you know, at some point we've got to figure out a way to make the elections about what's really producing these feelings rather than all these pseudo-issues that are easier to um, engender strong emotions among the voting population, but they're not really, um, you know, the the core issues that are affecting people and even making them feel the way they feel. Mm -hmm. 
And we'll be back to talk more about all of these topics after we take a short break. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We broadcast every Sunday at noon on WIUX 99.1 FM. You've been listening to our interview with Eric Deggins, National Public Radio's first full-time television critic. This week, we asked our producers about which TV shows that they will always defend. It's not something that I've been very invested in for very long, but probably Gilmore Girls. I recently got into that, and the revival is happening in a few weeks, so I'm ready. I think their witty banter and dialogue is something that is unparalleled in the world of TV, and I love the mother-daughter relationship. NBC's Hannibal, canceled too soon. I'm ready for the movie. Bring on Maz Mikkelsen, bring on Hugh Dancy. It's a masterpiece. I'll always defend Doctor Who, as nerdy as it is. It's like, it's so compelling. I don't know. It's just like about like magic and like good things in life. And it's great. And I love it. I will always defend the first, second, and third seasons of American Horror Story. Because... They're genius. Like, I once wrote for my gender studies class an essay about, like, one scene in one episode of Coven. And, in my opinion, the first and second seasons are even better. The Lizzie McGuire show, for sure. Also, That's So Raven. I'm a really big defender of Kim Possible as well. I will always defend probably the old America's Funniest Home Videos. You know, it was it was okay, but it was just the fact that our family, we'd sit around and watch it every Sunday before Extreme Home Makeover Home Edition. <laughs> and so it was just, yeah, it was just kind of, yeah. Okay, I tweeted that Bob's Burgers is the pinnacle of storytelling, and I stand by that. Like, I've seen all of Breaking Bad, I've seen all of Mad Men, I've seen everything that has won all the Emmys for its, like, gripping portrayals of middle-aged men going through crises, but Bob's Burgers is a masterpiece. And now, back to the show. Hi, you're listening to American Student Radio. I'm your host this week, Sophia Salvi. Um, as we said earlier, we've been talking to Eric Deggins. He's a graduate of IU, and he works for NPR as their first full-time TV critic, which when I was telling everybody that I was doing this show, everybody's like, I want that job for NPR <laughs> yeah. and watching TV. Like, That's right. What about it? Is like, like, Are there any downsides to watching a lot of TV uh. for a living? <laughs> Well, you got to watch a lot of TV. I did, what I tell people is I don't get paid to watch the good stuff. I get paid to watch the bad stuff. <laughs> so uh, the downside is part of the downside is that you have to watch a lot of bad television. And you have to really watch it. You can't just um, dismiss it because sometimes, you know, bad television is successful. Um, you know, CBS has um, all of its new shows this fall, all star white males. And most of them are pretty derivative, and they're pretty uh, representative of a time that I thought we had passed in television. You know, the comedy with the um, a, a adorably 
uh, dysfunctional husband and the long-suffering wife and the smart-alecky kids. There's, you know, two or three sitcoms like that on CBS now. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty bad compared to um, some of the best stuff that's on, even on network television this fall. But you got to watch it all uh, so that you fairly criticize uh, the stuff that's terrible. Uh, so that's that's one downside. And the other downside is that there is a lot of it. So you do have to spend a lot of time watching television. And what's um, what I found most difficult now is that there's not only a lot of new television, so you have to constantly, um, you know, my TV watching is two or three weeks ahead of everybody else's. So I'm watching stuff that will debut at the end of November, that will be debut in December, that will debut in January. I'm watching that stuff now. But I also have to keep track of the stuff that's already debuted, where I may have only seen two or three episodes of it, but it's sort of playing out. So there's a great show called This Is Us on NBC that's this wonderful family drama about three kids who grew up together. They were raised as brothers and sisters, but two of them uh, were biologically related, and one of them was um, adopted. And um, the story toggles back and forth between when they're adults and when they were kids growing up. And the pilot was amazing, but I wasn't sure, you know, what kind of stories you could tell about this family going forward. Well, now it's been on the air for two months, and it's it's grown into this amazing drama. But I don't, I wouldn't know that if I hadn't watched all of those episodes. And, you know, keeping track of all of that and also watching all the new stuff and also being ready when something newsy drops in your lap, like the big news on Friday was that Dave Chappelle and Tribe Called Quest are going to be on Saturday Night Live next week. Um, so the first Saturday after the elections, we're going to have one of the most insightful black comedians ever to have a TV show take over Saturday Night Live. Uh, it's No matter how that election ends, it's going to be awesome. But that news dropped on Friday, so you know you got to be ready to... Um, process that and turn that into um, you know news product too. So there's there's a lot to do, there's a lot to process, and you've got to figure out a way to talk about it that nobody else does. Um, but I, in, at the end of the day, I get paid to watch television, so I'm not going to complain. <laughs> One thing I noticed um, when you were talking with um, FIU is that. You said the season about two years ago was really good. We saw things like Blackish shows uh, and Fresh Off the Boat, and then the season last year was kind of reactive. It got, mm-hmm. it went back to what you'd seen. How is this season? Is this season any better? Or yeah, this season is back to. Um, we've seen the networks take a, a lot of ambitious chances with their new product again. Um, which is sort of where I expected we would be last season. You know, when you have a season where you have Fresh Off the Boat and Blackish and Empire, um, you know, all uh, debut in the same season, um, you know, and, and all uh, be relatively successful with viewers, you know, that should be a message to the TV industry that this is what network TV viewers want to see. Um, but unfortunately, we got a season where there was a bit of retrenchment and we had a lot of awful shows brought. Um, but a lot of, you know, the, the TV business is merciless in that way, and a lot of those shows are gone. And and now we have, um, you know, even a show that's that's relatively conventional, like Designated Survivor on ABC, which has got Kiefer Sutherland playing this sort of nebbishy guy who was about, who was part of the cabinet, the president's cabinet, but he was about to get fired. And, um, you know, I, I, they, I don't know, I guess everybody didn't know this, but... 
Um, there's a there's one person in the cabinet who's uh, in an undisclosed location when the State of the Union happens because almost every notable uh, figure in government gathers in the Capitol building to watch the president's speech. So just in case something happens and a bunch of people get killed, there's one person in an undisclosed location who would be safe. And so in this in this world, the Capitol is blown up. All those people are killed, and he becomes president. Um, now... Um, it sounds like, uh, you know, if they'd done it on film, it would have been one of these movies um, uh, with that Scottish guy um, uh, from 300. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, Dr- Russell Crowe? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's I, not Scottish. <laughs> I don't I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, it would have been one of these formulaic, you know, action movies. So I, w- I was not um, expecting a lot. But it's it's turned out to be a really interesting show in part because – Kiefer Sutherland is a really compelling TV actor and, um, you know, um, has a way of, of, of commanding your attention in situations where other actors wouldn't. So um, so even a show like that that you would think would be relatively um, predictable has not been. And, and, and so it's made this season feel really fresh. There's a show called Pitch on Fox about um, the first woman to compete in Major League Baseball. There's a show called The Good Place on NBC that's this wonderful comedy about what happens when you die and who goes to the good place and who goes to the bad place and what happens if there's a mistake where somebody who's supposed to go to the bad place winds up in the good place. Um, and, and, and so all of these shows um, have, have been like a breath of fresh air to network television. And um, I hope that the executives have learned and that they realize that this is sort of the path to success now. You have to be distinct. You have to have a new voice. You have to do things that are uh, multicultural. Um, you know, it's not just about white people on TV anymore. And, um, you know, it's time to challenge people a little bit more. That's what they expect. So, What have you seen in terms of, like, streaming shows? Like, as someone, I don't have cable. I mean, and I don't really watch. I watch, like, one network show. I know other right. people. I know people who watch This Is Us, though. Yeah. Um, but I watch a majority of my shows streaming. Mm-hmm. How have they done? Or like things like yeah. HBO Go, where they don't have major networks that are pushing down on them. They have a little bit more freedom. Well, streaming has exploded. And, and it, it was a big deal when HBO created a streaming service that you didn't have to already buy HBO um, through a cable company to access. HBO had, already, had had a streaming platform for people who bought HBO through Time Warner Cable or whatever their cable provider was, but they didn't have a service for people like you who, um, you know, don't pay for any cable, and now they do. And now Showtime has created um, their own streaming service, and CBS has their own streaming service. And so this has become the way of the future, and people have complained about buying cable service and paying for a bunch of channels that they don't watch. So now through these uh, what we call over-the-top OTT streaming services, um, that it allows you to have access to the kind of programming that would be on cable, but you don't have to buy all these channels that you don't want. And there's a, there's a service called Sling TV that came out, I think, at the beginning of the year that um, has about 20 cable channels on it. So if you're just interested in those 20 cable channels, you can pay, uh, I think uh, it's 20 bucks a month for Sling TV, and you don't have to have this unruly cable bill that's at least 60 or 70 or $80 a month. Uh, filled with all these channels that you never watch. Uh, and, and that's the way of the future in streaming, I think, is uh, there's, there's going to be a concerted push to come up with streaming services that have slimmed down packages of cable channels so that people can pick and choose what they want. Because the bottom line is that what streaming has done and online media has done 
is it's transferred power to the audience. Uh, the audience has a lot more ability to pick and choose what they want to see, when they want to see it. And um, consumers like yourself, especially who are really young, you expect good material to find you. You don't expect to have to work that hard to find great television or find great media experiences online. That, that media has to find you. And so it, you're not going to pay 80 bucks a month for a cable package where you are only interested in three of the channels. You're just not going to do that. And eventually somebody's going to create an app or some kind of streaming service that gives you what you want. And so if Time Warner Cable or DirecTV or Bright House or whatever, if they don't create that service, then one of their competitors will and they'll eat their lunch. So it puts them in a situation where they have to figure out how to give you what you want. And that's just happening more and more um, in in media. And, of course, we've seen the explosion of content on Netflix, original content on Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. And there's a real fear in the TV industry that Netflix will become the Google and the Uber of television, that they will have so much content and they will set the rules for what they will pay for that content and uh, you won't have much of a choice outside of them. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, over the next five years, how big does Netflix get, and how well does it competitor does its competitors keep pace with that? Are streaming services are they a little bit more ambitious when it comes to making diverse shows or making shows that are not about what you like the traditional sitcom? We've seen Master of None; they won Emmys for their writing, right? Insecure with HBO shows like that, like I you know, streaming services have not been the greatest i don't think mm -hmm. uh about they're, they're getting there right. you know master of none was a was a great uh move forward for netflix um but you know they've they've also had you know house of cards and um you know jessica jones and uh daredevil and you know they've had all these shows that are centered on white people um but uh, but they also had luke cage this year which was a superhero show that was had an almost entirely black cast uh, they had to get down which was a, a great, um, you know, period piece set in the 70s about the emergence of hip-hop um, that had a multi, mostly non-white cast. Uh, so I think the streaming services are getting there. Um, you look at Amazon, and Transparent is one of their most lauded shows, and in a way it's very diverse because it's about uh, transgender people, and, it's, and there's a lot of gay and lesbian characters in there, but it's also almost completely white. So, um, so, so diversity is a tricky thing. You know, you can have diversity in one way. You can have a show that uh, is centered on women. You can have a show that's centered on um, gay people or trans people. But you can also wind up with a show that's racially uh, not very diverse. Or you can do vice versa. You know, Luke Cage, um, you know, uh, has like one or two white characters in it. Um, but it, I, I don't remember any gay characters in it. Uh, um, and, um, you know, the, there's female characters in it who have agency, but it is centered on a male. So, you know, diversity is, is, is a difficult thing, and I think you achieve it through multiple shows, not just one. But um, streaming services are getting there. Actually, network television is getting um, much better about diversity, especially racial diversity, because um, its audiences have uh, reduced so much that people of color watch television proportionally a lot more than white people, and so they've had to create shows that speak to people of color because they're losing so much audience, they've got to go back to the, the people they can, they can count on. Uh, the one marginalized group that um, has not gotten much attention in any platform is Latinos and Hispanics. And 
it's criminal how underrepresented they are in movies and all forms of television. Um, there was a, a study that found that even though there's 16, 17% of the population, there's something like 5% of characters in primetime television on the networks. And that doesn't make any sense at all. We're not even talking about starring roles. We're just talking characters. So, um, you know, we've had a push for diversity, and a lot of times for Hollywood, diversity means black people. And now we got to get to the point where diversity means uh, not just black people, uh, but meaningful roles for Asian people and um, way more shows that are focused on Latinos and Hispanics. What do you make of all these revivals? We saw Fuller House earlier this year, Gilmore Girls is coming out, X-Files came out like way earlier this year, right. I think Twin Peaks is coming, and right. all these shows, major- like basically mostly white cast, but there's right. other revivals that are about, like what, is that, what does that speak to, I guess? Well, you know, in, in show business terms, it's, um, you have these huge media companies that have these shows that they have the rights to. And if there's a sense that they can go back to a show that they have the rights to and recreate it um, and, and make even more money off of it, <laughs> then, well, they love that, you know? So, um, you know, um, CBS, for example, owned the rights to MacGyver. And so with all these revivals going on, it made sense. Well, let's try and do a new version of MacGyver. And, um, you know, it airs on Fridays where the, um, the ratings performance expectations are lower on CBS, and it's performed well there. It's a brand name that people know. Um, and, uh, and so they, they create a sort of a formulaic CBS drama, but it's built around the framework of reviving this old brand that people are familiar with. You know, why wouldn't it be successful? And we've seen that with Lethal Weapon, too. And um, what I like better, of course, is when these old properties really get reinvented and you get a sense that they're being done because there's something creative new to say about them. So when you look at Fargo, um, that's a show that was made from a movie and when you saw the, the the TV version it was very different it was a unique experience and they were saying something new with this old framework and uh, and that's what I demand uh, from these reboots so I'm down on a lot of them I criticized Lethal Weapon I criticized MacGyver uh, I criticized Uncle Buck uh, I'm very skeptical about them but um, you know, Lethal Weapon has performed well. Um, MacGyver has performed well. We're going to see more of these. Um, but I'm highly, skept- I'm highly, highly skeptical of, of all of them. I know everybody's geeked about the Gilmore Girls coming back. Um, I'm not really. Um, that show has to be really good. And if it's not, it's just going to be a disappointing coda to a series that meant a lot to a lot of people. And Fuller House is just um, Netflix has developed several really broad comedies to see if they can put something on the service that isn't about a very specific, high-quality, um, you know, um, media television consumer. They want to put something on the air that maybe people who like, you know, Big Bang Theory or like a really broad comedy like Two Broke Girls, that they would, would you know, how do you get those people to watch Netflix? Um, well, Fuller House is one way. And according to some ratings figures that I've seen from, uh, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt because you don't know how accurate they are. But according to the ratings figures I've seen from one company that's trying to track Netflix viewership, Fuller House is like their second highest rated um, uh, product in the last year. So um, it, it seems to have worked for them, 
but if you've ever I, I think the show's unwatchable I can't understand why people watch it so I have a feeling when the Gilmore Girls thing comes out I'm going to have a lot of Gilmore Girls fans who will be disappointed in me but I'm not expecting a lot from that show um, real quick because we're almost out of time but I just um, wanted to ask like what what do you think what is the new thing that we'll see in the next seasons and like within the next year in terms of TV? Oh man, I have uh, no idea. <laughs> if I knew that, I would not be here talking to you. I would be making a getting, show, getting ready to rule the entertainment world. Um, I mean, all these, you know, we talked about all these uh, trends that seem to be coming to a head, you know, with streaming kind of exploding. Um, TV executives are afraid that we're going to reach a point where there's too much television. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's a lot of original product out there, but what's happened is that the people have been able to create a lot of very specific television. So Insecure is a show that's about a millennial black woman in Los Angeles. And Atlanta is a show about a millennial black man in Atlanta. And, you know, uh, uh, Queen Sugar is a show on uh, Oprah Winfrey's network that's about, a, you know, sort of a particular black family in New Orleans that has a farming tradition. So we're getting these very specific shows that also have sort of universal meanings to them. And I expect that that will continue. The question, the big questions that we have, we don't know. Will there come a point where the bottom falls out of the TV industry because there's too much original programming for anyone to really make money on? Um, Will we get to the point where uh, one streaming service like Netflix or if the AT&T Time Warner deal goes through where one merged company controls so much of television that they essentially become the Google or the Uber of television? Um, th those are the kind of things that seem uh, possible. And, and how, you know, how different will it be to cover news, in, you know, after this election, either under a Clinton administration or a Trump presidency? We don't, we don't know those things. And, and those are the things that I think are going to be most transformative about television and news in the next year. Well, I had so many other questions to ask, but unfortunately we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I've been your host, Sophia Salaby. Um, tune in next week. Noni Ford will be hosting a show on magic. Ooh. Uh, Can thanks. I come back for that? <laughs> yeah, that just come really on back. Cool. <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org.